This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 through 36. If you'd like to follow along as I read, it's found on pages 222 and 223 in the Bibles in your rows. Or you can just listen to God's word. 1 Samuel 2, starting in verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. He would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with the linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord, and also with man. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my offerings and sacrifices that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares... I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, 
Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places, that I may eat a morsel of bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. My name is Brian Ferry. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Um, and I was grateful for that long scripture reading this morning after singing Rock of Ages, uh, get the weeping uh, out of my eyes. Um, a number of years ago, I watched the film Doubt, which was made in 2008. It starred Meryl Streep, Viola Davis, Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Amy Adams, all of whom, by the way, were nominated for an Academy Award for their performances. Now, this isn't a new movie, and it wasn't a new movie when I watched it, because around that time our girls were little, and if it wasn't a Disney princess movie or made by Pixar, we probably weren't watching it. Um, but I was finally able to watch this movie, Doubt. Now, it's set in a, a Catholic school in the Bronx in 1964. It's December, um, about a year after John F. Kennedy's assassination during the beginnings of the Vietnam War and the burgeoning civil rights movement. Not to mention it was amidst all the changes that were happening within the Catholic Church going on during the Second Vatican Council. The movie follows a young African-American boy who's a student at the school, uh, an older, super-strict traditionalist nun who serves as the school's principal, a young priest who serves as the parish priest and the head of school, and a young nun who's a teacher at the school. Now, at issue in the movie, if you've seen it, you might remember, is the specific accusation of sexual abuse allegedly by Father Flynn, this young priest. The movie explores issues of faith, doubt, trust, and change, both religious and societal, and more. If you haven't seen it but do intend to watch it, make sure that you have some time to discuss the movie afterwards, because folks tend to be completely convinced of either Father Flynn's guilt or his innocence. All that is to say, I got to thinking about that movie this week because in Father Flynn, and actually in Sister Aloysius as well, we see at least the accusation and depiction of much of what is described in today's scripture reading. Abuse, power struggles, brokenness among religious leaders. Listen to the way Eugene Peterson describes Eli's sons and the message. He says, Eli's own sons were nothing but trouble. They didn't know God, and they could not have cared less about the customs of the priests among the people. It was a horrible sin these young servants were committing, and right in the presence of God, desecrating the holy offerings to God. Another translation says, Eli's sons were scoundrels, nothing but trouble, scoundrels, abusers, worthless men dressed up as priests of the Lord. 
Commentator Walter Brueggemann calls them degenerate and exploitative. And that might actually be generous. And we know it's not just Catholic priests in the 1960s that were suspect, right? Or these sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. That's just for presents and to make things sound weighty. Um, There's been scandals in the church throughout the ages, right? And the modern church is plagued with abusers of our own. We know the names. Ted Haggard, Jimmy Swagger, Jim Baker, Jerry Falwell Jr., recently Ravi Zacharias, Bill Heibel, Justin Bieber's pastor, right? Not to mention the seemingly unending string of abuse cases in the Catholic church or the obscure local pastors taking advantage of people in their congregations. Some friends of mine and I have been listening to um, the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, telling the complex, often sad story of the implosion of Mars Hill Church in Seattle and their pastor, Mark Driscoll. Professor and author Chuck DeGroat identifies narcissism as an issue affecting the church acutely these days. He recently wrote a book called When Narcissism Comes to Church, which does some assessment of emotional and spiritual abuse, sexual manipulation and assault, gaslighting, and more, all perpetrated by religious leaders. And listen to what psychologist Diane Langberg says. She says, The church that follows her head, the good and great shepherd, is a refuge for the flock, a place of green pastures and clear waters, a place of restoration for wounded sheep, and most certainly a place that fights off the wolves. The secular and religious news media have globally exposed the fact that not only are there wolves in the fold, we have, in the name of our God, protected their place among God's sheep by complicity, cover-up, and deceit. We've protected the institution of shepherding rather than the sheep. This results in untold damage being done to the body of Christ by those who name his name. I believe as Christ followers we are called to wrestle with the issue of abuse in Christian circles, fearlessly facing what is happening and the harm being done to the vulnerable and precious people dearly loved by God. Spiritual abuse should be an oxymoron. I think we can safely say the pairing of those two words is diabolical. All that is to say, the actual sin and abuse may look different today than it did for Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, but we have our own sons of Eli. Sin and abuse among church leaders is a modern perennial issue. And for some of us, it's more than that. It's a personal issue. We've been personally wounded and devastated by the sin and abuse of, uh, abuse of power of leaders that we've trusted. So what we're going to do is to take a tour through the scripture passage this morning, homing in on three things. First, Eli's son's sins. That's hard to say. Eli's son's sins. Secondly, how you reap what you sow. And then thirdly, we'll look at a true priest. First, Eli's son's sins. Now, naming sin, calling sin, sin, is important. Right? This can actually be where churches get tripped up. People make excuses for behavior or downplay what should obviously be called out as inappropriate. Saying something was only a joke or a hyperbole, it's not really that bad. We need to listen to the prophet Isaiah who said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Do you see what they were doing? They got things switched around. The first step in any abusive or broken situation is to name the sin, identify the specific problem. And here we see three, at least three, in our passage this morning. First, we see unbelief. Hophni and Phinehas didn't believe. Verse 12 says, After calling them worthless men, it says they did not know the Lord. This is troublesome, right? Here they are appointed as priests to be God's ambassadors to the people. 
enacting all the priestly duties, leading worship, interceding for the people, and they didn't know the Lord. They didn't believe a word of it. My first job in ministry was a summer youth ministry intern at a church here in town. And my supervisor was an ordained pastor who didn't believe that Jesus died on the cross and really was unconvinced that Jesus even existed. Now, this man was an ordained pastor. I won't say what denomination the church was, but I'll say it was not in the PCA, our little family of churches. But you can imagine how difficult it was to do ministry to teens alongside this man when he didn't buy it at all. His sin was the sin of Eli's sons. They didn't know the Lord. They didn't believe. Secondly, we see entitlement and greed. Phineas and Hophni used their position to take more than they needed and more than they were allowed to. They were entitled and they were greedy. It may seem a little bit convoluted as to what's happening uh, here in this passage. So the priests were provided for via the sacrifices of the worshipers. That's what's being described in verses 13 and following. So a worshiper would offer a sacrifice, burning the fat and then boiling the meat. And a servant of the priest would come along with a fork and, and dig some out of the boiling pot. What came up was the share that the priest would eat and live off of. It's the way the priests were provided for. They had plenty to eat. But that wasn't enough for these guys. They wanted more. They felt they deserved more. The rules didn't apply to them, and so they took to approaching the worshipers before they made their offerings. They were soliciting raw meat before it was offered. And when the worshipers pushed back, saying, let us burn the fat first, because the faithful worshipers knew how this goes and that the Lord should be giving his offering first. Then the priest can take as much as he wants. When they suggested that and pushed back against these guys, they were threatened with violence. The modern-day equivalent might be skimming cash from the offering plate or the bank accounts before it gets deposited, right? And then still taking a salary and benefits from the church. As commentator Joyce Baldwin describes them, Dissatisfied with what should have been adequate provisions, these men intimidated worshipers into allowing them to take a random selection of joints of meat, whether they were entitled to them or not. Protest was useless, and noncompliance was met by force. Entitlement says, I have certain rights and benefits that are due to me. No matter what, the rules don't apply to me. Greed says, I need more. I have to have more. And coercion says, give me what I want or else. Verse 17 says, Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for they treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. But that's not all. We see that these sons of Eli engaged in sexual abuse and exploitation. Now, it was an open secret that these priests were sexually involved with the women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Instead of guarding the dedicated virgins, the sons of Eli treated them as prostitutes. Hophni and Phinehas were using their position as religious leaders to be sexually involved with those in their congregation. And their father, who was also their boss, knew all about it. Look at verse 22. Eli's old, very old. But it says, he kept hearing all that his sons were doing. Everybody knew what was going on, and it got back to the old man. This kind of sexual abuse is sick, and it's twisted. Eli himself calls it evil dealings, and it's tied in with entitlement and greed. Commentator Mary Evans observes, sadly, that kind of sexual abuse by religious leaders who portray sexual activity with them as service of God is by no means unknown today. It is as abhorrent and as alien to God's real purposes now as it was then. The thought process seemed to go like this. I'm a big deal. I'm important. 
Look at all I do for the Lord. I speak to huge crowds. My books are bestsellers. I have a bajillion Twitter followers. I do so much good in ministry. I work so hard. I deserve this. It's twisted. And what does the Lord think of this? We'll look at the second part of verse 25. It says, but they would not listen to the voice of their father, and it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Their behavior was so wicked that they had hardened uncrackable hearts. And they were headed toward a bitter end. God hated their sexual abuse. And the consequence for them was going to be their demise. We must name sin for what it is. We must not let it fester unconfessed and unrepented of. We'll let Diane Langberg again have the last word for this section. She writes, No so-called Christian system is truly God's work unless it fleshes out his character. Toleration of sin pretense and crookedness do not reveal the character of God, even if they bear his name. Arrogance is never godly. Covering up sin is never godly. Abuse of power is never godly. Shepherds who feed on the sheep are abusive. Which kind of leads to our second major section here, and that is this idea that you reap what you sow. In Galatians, Paul writes, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the flesh, reap, or from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Hoffney and Phineas could have benefited from Paul's words if they would have listened. But do you see what Paul is saying? Whatever seeds you plant... That's what you're going to grow. The way Jesus put it is no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from a bramble bush. The seed determines the fruit. What you plant determines what you harvest. You may have heard the saying, this is attributed to Ralph Waldo Emerson. I first heard it as a young man, and it's always stuck with me. You sow a thought... Reap an action. Sow an act, you reap a habit. Sow a habit, you reap a character. Sow a character, and you reap a destiny. One thing leads to another. Our thoughts become actions, become habits, become our character, becomes our destiny, our life. Now, there are a couple of instances of reaping and sowing here in our story from this morning. First, you sow lack of accountability, and you reap abuse. Hophni and Phineas have no one around them who actually holds them accountable for their actions. Their victims, who are having their offerings taken, try to speak up, but then they're threatened with violence. The whole community knows what's going on with the sexual involvement of the women serving at the tent of meeting, and I bet they were talking about it, but it seems that there's nothing that they could really do about it. Nobody has the ability to really rebuke or discipline, discipline them, except for, well, their father dad, who's also their boss, right? But Eli fails to rebuke and discipline his son specifically and with consequences. He says, why do you do such things? Your bad behavior is the talk of the town. But then he does nothing. It's a bit like a parent of a toddler making a a vague, empty threat, like, if you don't shape up your behavior, I'm going to throw away all your toys. That's not specific, and it's an empty threat. The kid knows that the parent isn't going to throw away all their toys, and they don't really know what they're supposed to do. Just a vague threat. So Eli doesn't confront their sexual sins specifically, and there are no consequences. They continue on as abusive priests. 
Now, this is one reason I think it's good to be Presbyterian. We don't talk about our polity and stuff a lot around here, but I think there's real wisdom in health in Presbyterianism, and that's the health is accountability. Right? We pastors are accountable to our elders here at the church. We call them the session. Incidentally, the session, the idea is called the session is because they're held in session with Christ, like they're having a session with him, which is kind of interesting. So the elders and the pastors, right, we are all accountable to the presbytery, which is comprised of pastors and elders from other churches in our region. And our presbytery is accountable to the General Assembly, which meets yearly, as we did uh, several weeks ago. Now, it's not a foolproof system by any means, but there are guardrails of accountability, so that if any of us pastors were to get out of line and sin against you or abuse you, there are folks who will listen to you and help you. Our elders' names are listed in the bulletins, and there's an elder up here every Sunday up front to pray for you after worship. We have what I think is a healthy structure of accountability in place. But back to Eli and his sons. Eli doesn't confront Hophni and Phinehas' greedy theft of the meat offerings either, and that seems to be because he was benefiting from it. He was benefiting from the meat that they were stealing, right? Which shows us that if you sow comfort and benefit from ill-gotten gain, you will reap downfall. Or you might say, if you sow unethical work, you'll get fired. Verse 29, an unnamed prophet who does have the boldness to specifically rebuke, he calls Eli out saying, you scorn the Lord's sacrifices and offerings and honor your sons above the Lord by fattening yourselves on the choicest part of every offering. See, Eli is benefiting from his son's greed and entitlement and theft from their sin. Now, apparently there's a pun in the Hebrew here. That phrase, fattening yourself, means heavy, which is quite close to the word glory. They kind of sound really similar. So Eli is gaining body weight on trade for the weight of the glory of God. The unnamed prophet declares that both of Eli's sons will die on the same day. That their family will have a history going forward of dying young. No one's going to live to see an old age. And that the entire family but one will be removed from the priesthood. If you sow comfort, ease, and benefit from sinful, ill-gotten gain, you will reap downfall. The way the Apostle Paul said it is, the wages of sin is death. If you sow sin, you will reap death. There are consequences for our actions. We do have to take responsibility for our lives, right? There is justice. Well, you say, what about when the wicked prosper? That's what immediately comes to my mind. Yeah, but what about when the wicked prosper and they get away with it? What about when abusers get away with abuse and white-collar thieves prosper in sketchy financial dealings and abusive pastors just move on from one church to another church leaving carnage in their wake. Well, a few weeks ago, Pastor Josh dealt with some of this when he preached on Psalm 37. So I won't belabor it, but in Psalm 37, David writes this. He says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. For evildoers shall be cut off in a little while, The wicked will be no more, and so on and so on. And as Josh said, the wicked man seems to be prospering, but that's just a snapshot. Halftime is not the final score. We need to take the long view. 
The point is, there will come a time of judgment. As we affirm in the Apostles' Creed, Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. For a little while, the wicked may seem to prosper, but that's temporary. It won't last, and they will receive justice. We don't have to enact the justice. We don't have to fret. We can trust God to give the wicked their just desserts. And that is a mercy and a comfort to the righteous. But it is a sobering thought to the wicked. You reap what you sow. All right, finally, let's look toward a faithful priest. Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, all of them are false, unfaithful priests. But in verse 35, we see the promise of the Lord. It says, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. The people were longing for a true priest, as you can imagine. Right? After the abuse of power, the sex scandals, the thieving, I can imagine that the congregants were beat up and exhausted. And again, for some of us, this is not just a story we read this morning, but a story that's way too familiar to what we've experienced we may be left saying, as Chuck DeGroote says, many do, I trusted the church, but I'm not sure that I can now. Which then sadly becomes the question, can I even trust God? So how refreshing and hopeful to hear the promise of a faithful priest. And throughout this story in 1 Samuel 2, we get breaths of fresh air as we hear about Samuel. Samuel is mentioned as a direct contrast to Eli and his sons. Ryan told of Samuel's origin story last week, and here this morning we get snapshots of his growth, and we'll hear more over the coming weeks. Verse 18, right? Samuel was ministering before the Lord. Verse 21, Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Verse 26, the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. What a contrast, right? Hophni and Phinehas exploited their position. Samuel, humbly and without fanfare, took care of his responsibilities in the tabernacle. The sons of Eli didn't know God. Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. The sons of Eli were notorious sinners. Samuel was just a humble servant of God. The sons of Eli grew in wickedness and girth, right, from their stolen meat. Samuel grew in stature and favor with the Lord. The sons of Eli fell out of favor and were feared by their congregation. Samuel grew in favor with his community. The contrast could hardly have been more stark. Pastor and commentator Peter Lightheart summarizes this picture of Samuel as faithful priest well. He says, Samuel did not become the leader of Israel by seizing power, but by faithfully serving even in an ungodly and doomed sanctuary. In this, he foreshadowed David and also set a pattern for Christians who seek godly leadership. We see Samuel as a faithful priest, and we'll continue to learn about Samuel over the next several weeks. But the promise of a faithful priest goes well beyond Samuel and others and is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate faithful priest. Listen to the book of Hebrews. This is some selections from chapters 4, 5, and 7. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears 
It was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he'd offered up himself. Go back and read chapters 4 and following in Hebrews this week for more of this. But what a contrast, right? What a difference from the sons of Eli. What a true and better Samuel. Not like Hophni and Phinehas, abusers, thieves, scoundrels, but rather a true faithful high priest. The most faithful high priest. He will never leave you nor forsake you. He is faithful, true, and trustworthy. He is gentle and lowly. He will come to judge making right all wrongs. He will treat gently and kindly. He will not abuse. A bruised reed he will not break. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to the soul sick as a doctor serves and cares for the physically ill. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came not to take, but to give himself. Emptied himself. Thanks be to God. You know, at its best, Church can be a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God, but it can also be really, really messed up, hurtful, and ugly. It's quite possible that this story and this sermon this morning swatted a bee's nest, stirring up some stuff that, if not settled, at least wasn't aggravated for you. I guess my call would be to come to Jesus this morning. Fix your eyes on Jesus, our true and faithful priest, the author and perfecter of our faith. Come if you're weary, burdened. He will give you rest. And if there's stuff that needs to be dealt with, come and pray with Phil, one of our elders after, or talk with one of the pastors. And as we sometimes sing, though we are weeping, let us keep sowing seeds of the kingdom for the day that we will reap them. And by God's mercy, we will be a church that follows in the footsteps of Samuel and Jesus, faithfully celebrating Christ and serving Cincinnati. As Diane Langberg said, may we be a church that follows her head, the good and great shepherd. That is a refuge for the flock, a place of green pastures and clear waters, a place of restoration for wounded sheep, and most certainly a place that fights off the wolves. May it be so. Let's pray and then we'll sing and come to the table. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for our great, true, faithful high priest, Jesus Christ. What a mercy and a comfort to us that we have a a great high priest who is able to sympathize with us, who knows suffering, who knows pain, who weeps, who looks at the hypocrisy and abuse and unrighteousness present even in churches and laments with us and hurts with us. For those of us here this morning who have been wounded by the church and its leaders, we ask for your healing and comfort. For those who have contributed to the pain and hurt and abuse and brokenness in churches, we ask for your judgment, your forgiveness, and your mercy. And God, we ask, we plead to protect this church from any waywardness. Keep us in the path of Samuel and Jesus. Give our pastors and elders godly character, wise and loving hearts and lives that are above reproach. Give us all wisdom and gentleness as we walk with one another, healing with one another, pursuing Jesus with one another. Let us remember that we reap what we sow. And so let us be sowing seeds of the kingdom, that your kingdom would indeed be coming here on earth as it is in heaven through our little church in this city and at this time in history. We ask all of this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. 
Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.